Hey everyone, Rick Cole here once again with the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We're back this week with news from the hockey and sporting worlds in the time period from January 19th to 25th, 1970, and it was quite a week. Now, as we do every week, we want to mention our sponsors right off the bat. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and most of our research comes as a result of their files. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in Port Colborne, Ontario, makers of some amazing craft beers, many of which are from recipes from the first brewery, which was located in Port Colborne in the late 1800s. They also serve great food there with delicious burger and pizza specials each week and they're created by an amazing team that they have in their kitchen if you're ever in the niagara region you have to try the break wall brewing company in last week's show some of the news items we discussed were uh, what appeared to be a total collapse by the toronto maple leafs uh, the buffalo nhl team got their man when they hired punch imlac to run the hockey operations and we talked a little bit more on the Kurt Flood challenge to baseball's reserve clause and how hockey's uh, people were uh, viewing that situation. This week a whole bunch of new different issues. Uh, We're going to look at the 1970 all-star game from St. Louis which was really quite the quite the uh, display and uh, for some surprising reasons we're also going to look at the progress being made in the expansion cities in buffalo and vancouver and our uh, person of the week is going to be a a very personal one for me and i'll uh, talk about some personal experiences i had with this person Uh, of course we have all the news from the hockey world lots to get to so let's uh start the program and get at it Now, now, usually at this time every week, I, I put a little personal statement out, something uh, how I'm feeling about things, and I'm going to start, change the order a bit this week as well. I'm going to talk about our hockey personality of the week because uh, what I'm going to talk about was very personal to me. Uh, this week around, we're looking at former Toronto Maple Leaf, New York Ranger, Montreal Canadian, L.A. King, and Buffalo Sabre, Dick Duff, who's also a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, this is a personal choice for me. As I was growing up, right from the time I started watching hockey in the late 1950s, he was my favorite player. He was just a guy that kind of caught my attention when I started watching the games with my dad on Saturdays and Wednesdays. I liked the way he played the game. He wasn't a big guy, but he was feisty and he had a deadly touch around the net. Uh, It was a traumatic time for me in February of 1964 when Dick was traded from Toronto along with Bob Nevin, Ernie Brown, Rod Sealing, and Bill Collins to the New York Rangers for Andy Bathgate and Don McKenney. Now that trade may have won a Stanley Cup for the Maple Leafs, but it damaged the club in the long run as far as I was concerned. Dick will tell you that, so will Bob Nevin, whom I've talked to about that deal as well. 
Dick later went on to the Montreal Canadiens after that short stint with the Rangers, and his career enjoyed a renaissance. He won four more Stanley Cups with the Habs and cemented his reputation as one of hockey's all-time great money players. When the game was on the line, you could count on Dick Duff to have scoring chances and probably score a big goal. Dick had this wonderful habit of scoring those goals when they were most needed, and his selection to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2006 was a testament to his ability to perform and deliver in the clutch. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a litany of statistics and biographical information. You can get pretty well anywhere off the internet, but I'd rather talk about the kind of guy Dick is and give some insight into his personality and uh, what I discovered about him during uh, some time I spent with him a few years ago. Now, this was back in 2001, September 2001, and in fact, it happened... uh, the week of 9-11, just a few days after. I was involved in a project uh, we had undertaken in Port Colborne, Ontario. We called it the Port Colborne Legends Series. Uh, Once or twice a month, we would hold an event at our local uh, theater entertainment hub. was called the Roselawn Center. The Roselawn Center was uh, over a 100-year-old big mansion that we had added on a curling club and a theater state-of-the-art theater, by the way, and there were all kinds of summer uh, plays and stuff that were put on by a local theater company. There was a kitchen and a restaurant, a bar that was built on there. It was really, still is, a really, really nice place. Not used the same way now, but back at that time, we were trying to restore the building to its original grandeur, and to do that, we came up with this series. Uh, What we did there was we would bring in a local celebrity who had done well in their particular field and left their mark on the world. Uh, Most of these people had gone away from Port Colvern, but uh, we would bring them back from places like Chicago. We had the DeFranco family uh, who had were a great uh, kid, kid band, teen band sort of thing in the 60s and 70s. And uh, we even did a couple of sports uh, presentations, one involving... Paul Beeston, who's from nearby Welland and was president of the Toronto Blue Jays, and one involving Teeter Kennedy. And if you're a hockey fan listening to this like you most likely are, I don't have to tell you who Teeter Kennedy is. Uh, How we would do this is we would bring the celebrity in, we would have dinner at the Roselawn Center, and then we would uh, adjourn to the theater, sell tickets, and do kind of a Michael Landsberg off-the-record type of show where we'd have some nice, big, comfortable chairs on the stage, and for the sports presentations, I would be the host, I'd interview uh, these folks, and then we would just do a nice little question-and-answer period. Anyway, as we began planning these things uh, through the summer and uh, the the Teeter Kennedy evening, I spoke with Ted, who was a good friend of mine. We went to his house. We would uh, spend a lot of afternoons together there. And I started uh, asking him just how the program would look and what he thought of it. He was really quick to agree to participate, which was a little surprising. Ted liked to keep to himself at this point in his life. But he understood that uh, recognizing local heroes was important, and he wanted to help his hometown in any way he could. Uh, He had some reservations, though. Uh, 
I couldn't believe it when he told me, Rick, I don't think I've got enough stories to fill about 90 minutes on stage in front of everybody from Port. Now, I was basically dumbfounded. We'd spent many afternoons in his home in Port Coburn, and he told me so many tales, none of them tall, all of them very, very, very real from his playing days. Uh, many of these stories I'd never heard before, still haven't been told to this general public to this date. But I wanted to make this as easy and stress-free as I could, so I suggested to Ted that maybe we should bring someone else in to share the stage with us. And I asked him, I said, Ted, who would you like to have uh, up on stage with you as a guest for this? He didn't hesitate. He said to me right away, Dickie Duff, I'd like to have Dickie Duff come down. I haven't seen him in ages. Uh, I, I was surprised at that selection i asked him why dick and he said well he says i always liked the way he played the game and he was the guy who wore my number nine after i retired and i always figured he was a was worthy of that number uh ted said he liked dick's style of play always liked the way he was a a stand-up guy and that he reminded him of himself a little bit from his younger days so with that request in hand, I set out to contact Dick Duff and see if we, he would agree to come to Port Coburn and take part in the event. Uh, I contacted the well-known hockey historian, Paul Patsko. Many of you know him, and we'll be hearing a lot more from Paul in the future on this podcast. And he provided me with Dick's contact information. Now, Paul and quite a few other hockey folks I had spoken to warned me that Dick wasn't often too agreeable to participating in things like this, and he might not be the best guest to try and have at something like this. But Ted was insistent that if we could get him, Dick would, Dick would be the guest he'd like to have. Now, Ted, as usual, was spot on in his assessment of Dick Duff. Now, I called Dick on the telephone, explained what we were doing, and he enthusiastically agreed to come to Port Coburn with absolutely no hesitation. I asked him if there was a fee he might want, and he flatly refused to be paid for this. He said that if this was a night for Teeter Kennedy, he wanted to be there. In fact, he had to be there. He told me, just give me the time and the place, directions, I'll be there. Well, I explained, explained to Dick, we'd send a driver to pick him up at his home in Mississauga, and uh, we'd bring him down, we'd give him dinner, we'd take care of him, we'd get him a room for the night if he wanted to stay in Port Coburn. He said that wouldn't be necessary. He was happy to drive to Port Coburn. Well, a couple few weeks later, as we uh, got the program ready, the day arrived. Everybody, of course, feeling a little bit down after the events of 9-11, and we were hoping that we wouldn't have to cancel the event. But our committee sat down, and we decided we're not giving in to these people who committed those awful acts that took place on 9-11. We're not going to let them win. We're going to have our, our uh, event as planned. Dick arrived in Port Coburn uh, that afternoon, about 2 p.m. He came to the Roselawn Center. I met him there. Uh, we hopped in my car, and, and uh, I said I'd give him a little tour of Port Coburn. I was surprised to find out Dick had spent time in Port Coburn much earlier in his life. He actually had relatives who lived in town and had worked at the Inco Refinery. I didn't know any of those folks. Right off the bat, I found Dick to be friendly, open and eager to talk hockey once he knew that I was a hockey guy. Uh, 
After we talked a bit, he understood that I had a decent knowledge of the game and its history, and he really opened up, and he told me some great stories. Uh, can't repeat all of them, but I did want to talk about a couple of them here, just to give you some insight into the type of guy Dick Duff is. One of the first things I asked him was about his trade from Toronto to the New York Rangers in February of 1964, and he related something to me about that deal that I'd never heard anywhere else. Dick said that on the day the trade took place, and it took place in the afternoon of February 22nd, uh, he was called by King Clancy, who was the Leafs' assistant general manager, coach, and Punch Imlach's right-hand man. And uh, King gave him the bad news, it was bad to Dick, that he and a bunch of other guys had gone to the New York Rangers for Andy Bathgate and Don McKenney. Dick right away asked King to put him on with Punch Imlach. He wanted to speak to Imlach. King told Dick that he couldn't speak to Punch because Punch himself was too upset over the trade. Uh, Dick was a particular favorite of Punch's, and as I found out a, a few years later, he was a particular favorite of Punch Imlach's daughter, who vilified her dad for trading away her favorite player. Understandably beside himself, Dick wasn't sure what his options were, or whether he even had any options or recourse other than to dutifully report to the New York dressing room that night. You see, the deal took place on a Saturday afternoon, and the Rangers were actually playing at Maple Leaf Gardens against the Leafs that night. So this was just going to be a case of different guys reporting to different or different dressing rooms and meet their new players. Now, Dick wasn't really sure what to do, but he knew one thing. There was one man in Toronto whom all the Maple Leaf players considered as the wisest hockey guy they knew, more experienced in hockey life than all of them. And Dick said he was going to call that guy and get his advice. That man he called was the great Charlie Conacher. Now, Dick was shocked when he called Charlie. He said, they traded me to the Rangers today. I don't know what to do. What should I do? Charlie said two words to him. Don't go. Dick said at that point, he said he was in shock. He couldn't believe that Charlie had told him that. But he said, I got to go. I've got a contract. I have to live up to the contract. There's nothing I can do about it. Charlie cut him off mid-sentence, according to Dick, and said, what are they going to do if you refuse to go? They don't have a trade without you. They have to do something for you. Now, then he, he told Dick that uh, they can't cancel the trade after it's been announced. There's no way they could do that. So Dick went on to tell me that Charlie said, of course, you're going to have to go to the Rangers, but don't make it easy for him. Charlie told Dick that he would eventually have to go to the Rangers, but to tell Toronto and New York, he wouldn't go at all. But if they came up with a cool $10,000 in cash, that might convince him. Charlie was completely convinced that one or both of the teams involved in the trade would readily cough up the money to get Dick in uniform for them and make the trade complete. Well, Dick uh, told me that he was just too scared to do that. He went, uh, went along, never made the request, and reported to the Rangers. It was, by the way, 
a very unhappy time in Dick's career, but as I mentioned earlier, the trade to Montreal gave him a new lease on life, and he had several more very productive seasons. So there you have it. Years before money, no trade clauses, and other such commonplace issues with modern players came uh, to the fore, we have one of the all-time great players counseling a young star in much the same manner as an agent would today. Now, I often wonder after having that conversation with Dick, I wonder what Al Eagleson would have told him. Eagleson being more in the owner's pockets than really looking out for players' best interests. I just wonder how that would have gone. Now, another interesting thing that Dick told me that day related to how the players on the established teams felt about those who played for the first six uh, NHL expansion teams that came into the league for the 1967-68 season. And as Dick said, it wasn't pretty. Dick said that most of the players on the teams had, these teams that were, by the way, incorrectly dubbed the original six, and I just want to let you know, I hate that term. It's so inaccurate. Most of the guys who were on those established teams felt that expansion teams were basically minor league. They weren't equal, and they weren't if you watch the games, to the Eastern Division teams, and the players who played for those teams, they felt they were a little less than bona fide big leaguers. Dick said he had many friends on those teams who told him that even they felt that way to a certain extent, that they felt like second-class hockey citizens, but that the major league salaries they got eased the pain somewhat. They did get paid big league bucks. A lot of guys, Terry Sachuk and Glenn Hall, or two that come to mind right away, made a lot more money with the expansion teams than they did With the teams before, expansion took place. Sachuk, of course, had been with the Toronto Maple Leafs, Glenn Hall with the Blackhawks. He got big money to go to the Blues. So it was a special afternoon I I spent with a boyhood idol, and the evening even went better than I could have expected it. We had a great show on the Roselawn stage. We had a fairly packed house despite the... uh, historical time period we were in and the specter of 9-11 having taken place. Uh, Ted Kennedy was wonderful. He was open. He was enthusiastic. He shared some wonderful stories. And at one point, he even demonstrated his technique for taking face-offs with a hockey stick we had handy. I had brought an old straight blade wooden stick from the 1960s I'd somehow managed to retain and he autographed it for me as did Dick. Well, we took that stick out and he showed me and the crowd there just how he took face-offs which of course of everyone followed uh, Ted Kennedy's career that was one of his uh, his specialties uh, Dick on the other hand he was engaging witty downright funny at sometimes and he answered questions from the audience very candidly and here's what impressed me most at the end of the evening as we drew things to a close and everyone was leaving the theater Dick went down by the main entrance, he stand, or the main exit, I should say. He stood there and he shook every single person's hand that passed by. He then joined us at the Roselawn Bar afterwards for an hour or so, and we just talked hockey and even some Port, Hover, Port Covern history before he made his way back to Mississauga. I couldn't have been happier than the way the night went that, uh, that evening. Dick Duff was a very big part of that. And I was even happier five years later 
in 2006 when Dick Duff was voted to the Hockey Hall of Fame. A great honor for a great guy. And that's our person of the week. Very personal for me, Dick Duff. Now, the big news of the Hockey Week, of course, um, back in 1970, was the National Hockey League All-Star Game, which was held in St. Louis. Uh, January 20th was the date. Uh, news was being made on the, even, the evening before the game. At the gala dinner that was customarily held the night before the game, East coach Claude Ruel, given those duties by virtue of his being the Stanley Cup winning coach in the spring, of 1969 was sounding very insecure as he spoke to Red Burnett of the Toronto Star. Now anyone who who followed hockey during the 1969-70 season knows that uh, Claude Ruel always seemed to be a bit insecure with his position with the Montreal Canadiens. Maybe Claude knew he was really in over his head, although winning a Stanley Cup would kind of not lend credence to that that notion but he talked to Red Burnett this this evening and Red Burnett asked him about coaching such great players and Ruel of course made it about himself here's what he said to Red Burnett of the Toronto Star when I take over the Canadians from the great Toe Blake last season, they ask me, how are you going to tell a great like John Beliveau what to do? And I tell him, I'm a coach. He is my player. I will give instruction and he will do his best to make me look good. Now they ask me, how are you going to tell fellas like Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull what to do in the R-Star game? Do they forget so quick? If Big John do for me what I want, the same holds good for Hull and Howe. Tonight, I am their coach. They will make me look good. It was all about Claude looking good, especially against a fellow he kind of viewed as a little bit of a rival, Scotty Bowman, who was coaching the rest Western Division team. Now, it seems any time that uh, one sees well being quoted these days, it's over a dispute or some other controversy with one of his players, or he's talking about how his players are making him look good. This is something, if you go through the uh, archives of the Montreal Gazette, it's a pattern that existed at that time. Claude always seemed to make any issues with teams of which he's in charge all about him. Make no mistake, uh, Claude was a consummate company man. He Montreal Canadian through and through. Uh, if he hadn't been, he wouldn't have risen to the lofty position that he held in 1970. But he seems to be a guy that realizes he's got to constantly justify his credentials to those whom he realizes might just be seeing through his act. Nonetheless, Claude had a very fine team with which to work in this particular All-Star game. Anyone with a modicum of hockey knowledge could see that the Western Division stars, ably led by Mr. Bowman of the Blues, were really no match for the powerful Easterners. The best player on the the Western Division was Red Berenson of St. Louis, a very good player, but not a man who, 
in the annals of history is compared in the same breath as Stan Makita, Phil Esposito, Gordie Howe, or Frank Mahovlich. And that's just a few of the bright lights that were shining for the East Division team. The best Scotty Bowman could hope for in this game was spectacular goaltending from Jacques Plan of the Blues and the Flyers' Bernie Perrant to keep the score close and then maybe get a lucky goal or two. But in the end, that didn't happen. The Eastern team defeated the West by a score of 4-1, to one, with all four of their goals coming against Perrant in the first 23 minutes and 26 seconds of the game. Jacques Perrier, Gordie Howe, Bobby Hull, and Walter Kachuk were the marksmen for the East team with Dean Prentice getting the goal for the West Division. Now, Perrier's goal was the first of the game, and it came after only 20 seconds from the opening faceoff and just 17 seconds after that, Prentice tied the game, and we have the audio clips of those two goals. Bill Esposito at center right, and Frank Mahavlich on the left wing, and Howard on the right for the East Division. Standing at center right is O'Shea, number 15, with Goldsworthy on the right wing. Here's Mahavlich for the shot, he's Esposito right on. Brad knocked it into the corner. O'Shea against the board. Howell covering. Gordy Howe, number nine, he's trying to center it. The Western Division clear, but not out. Lapierre is going to score! Jack Lapierre from the blue line. Well, after that quick start, we thought, holy moly, this is going to be a 13 to 11 score or something like that. These guys are just going to score at will, but the team settled down pretty well. Uh, Bill Hewitt, by the way, if you in that clip, described the play by play in the first half of the game. And in the second half, it was the Blues announcer, Canadian Dan Kelly, who, of course, was famous for his vivid descriptions of the games throughout especially the 1970s when he helped establish uh, St. Louis's franchise with some great play-by-play. Now, while the East did score three more goals on Bernie Perrant to make that final 4-1, Jacques Plante came into the game halfway through and the veteran 43-year-old was nothing short of spectacular. Uh, he made save after save in front of a frenzied hometown St. Louis crowd, which, by the way, set a record for attendance at an All-Star game. Uh, here's a sequence of saves by the Hall of Fame netminder Plant, as described by Dan Kelly. Howell gets piece of Kachuk, who now fights for it with gold for the... Here's Busick trying to center it. Busick for the East to have the pressure on again. Back to Brewer. Brewer over to LaPerriere. LaPerriere the drive and Plot made the save. LaPerriere in the corner. Centering it. Here's the two Plot up back to. And Parisi has it in the corner. And Jacques Plot so far has been the story since he came into the game. A shot stopped by Plot who holds on for a faceoff and gets another great hand. This game is coming to you from the arena in St. Louis. 
Overall, the game was considered a huge success, especially with the uh, fine crowd that turned out in St. Louis. The NHL in those days was far more worried about ticket sales than they were actual TV numbers, so we don't really know just how well the game was received uh, in the United States. I don't believe the game was broadcast uh, nationally in the U.S. at this point, but it was on a midweek telecast of Hockey Night in Canada. That was how the All-Star Game went, and it was a very good example of what was to come in the All-Star Games of the future. Now, the All-Star festivities, they came with their own set of headlines before uh, before the game. One of the most prominent stories came out of a Detroit newspaper, which claimed former Red Wings coach Bill Gadsby, had, he was headed west to become the head coach of the new Vancouver NHL team, the Canucks, as they would be known. Bill was apparently going to be working for former Philadelphia Flyers general manager, Bud Poyle, who had just been fired a few weeks earlier. Poyle was thought to be the main choice as the Vancouver team's new GM. Lyman Walters, who was vice president of uh, Metacore, who owned the new uh, Vancouver team, flatly denied the story, stating that no decision on a general manager or coach had yet been made. Gadsby himself told several hockey people, I don't know where they get that stuff. It's not happening. I haven't been spoken to anyone in Vancouver in connection with that Vancouver job. The Canucks didn't, in the meanwhile, take more steps in preparation for the franchise's first season. Metacore management said that they planned to meet with the Western Hockey League Canucks general manager, Joe Crozier, within the next week or so to discuss his thoughts on building the team. They had several other hockey players or hockey people lined up for interviews as well, and in Buffalo, with Punch Imlach now in tow as general manager and coach, negotiations began between the NHL people and city council over terms of rent for the use of Memorial Auditorium by the NHL team. Well, that negotiation took just a quick two days. An agreement was hammered out. And as soon as that happened, they also announced a name the team contest where fans would be invited to send their suggestions for the name of the new Buffalo team and the people whose selections were uh, finally chosen would win a couple of season tickets to the Sabres. Yeah, I entered at the time, and to be honest, I can't even remember the names I sent. It might have been something like the Buffalo Bullets or something crazy like that. wasn't close to what eventually won. More news out of the All-Star Gala. Bruins injured defenseman Ted Green. You'll remember he suffered a fractured skull in that ugly stick-swinging duel with Wayne Mackey in an exhibition game back in uh, September in Ottawa. He informed everyone present that he has ruled out a return to the NHL in the 1969-70 season. But the good news is, terrible Teddy expects to be back in uniform and playing for the Bruins in the 1970-71 campaign. Green also said that 
rival Toronto Maple Leafs had given him a helmet that is the same make and model worn by Stan Makita of the Chicago Blackhawks. Ted said that he is uh, slated to soon undergo further surgery to insert a plastic plate in his skull to protect his brain, and he says he's worried more about the assault charges he's facing in Ottawa over the stick swinging than the upcoming operation. Here's another interesting tidbit from the All-Star Gala. A confrontation, not of the on-ice variety, took place that had tongues wagging uh, for hours after it happened. Uh, Buffalo Courier Express reporter Charlie Barton happened to be right in the right spot at the right time, and he has the details of an exchange between the new Buffalo general manager Punch Imlach and Toronto Maple Leaf president C. Stafford Smythe. Now, this was at a cocktail party preceding uh, the game the night before, and Imlac was there. And while Bobby Clark uh, was around speaking to some people, Stafford Smythe appeared. Imlac, who happened to be chatting with Barton, pointed to Smythe and he said, There he is. He might have used another expletive, but Charlie didn't report on that. But Imlac walked right over towards Staff. Smythe never uh, batted an eye. He approached Imlac, none of the customary, hey, how you doing type of thing, uh, salutations, but rather Smythe looked at Imlac and said, I'm going to clobber you. I'm going to give it to you real good. I got everything written down, but you know, I got some other problems, and when they're taken care of, I'm going to take care of you. Now, Smythe's other problems, of course, are the trouble with the Canadian uh, income tax authorities, something over which he might just go to jail. Imlac, he was nonplussed. He looked right back at Smythe and said, the next time is mine, indicating, of course, that as far as Punch was concerned, Smythe had uh, given the first blow when he fired Punch unceremoniously from the Leafs at the end of the 1969 playoffs. Smythe kept going back and forth with Imlac at the time, and they finally ended with Smythe saying to Imlac, you're too old to run a hockey club, and you should know it. Imlac, by the way, is 51, which would seem to be, at least in the field of hockey management, a prime age to uh, be employed in that field. There'll be more on this, I'm sure, as time goes on, and we'll have to stay tuned for that. Now, there were three St. Louis Blues players who were selected to the All-Star Game, and they didn't play. They were Phil Goyette having an absolutely magnificent best season of his career. He's a center. Goalie Glenn Hall, who was named to the team by Scotty Bowman, and defenseman Al Arbor, who was voted to the team as well. By the way, the uh, replacement for Goyette was a young fellow in his rookie season from the Flyers by the name of Bob Clark. Now on to the rest of the news and the notes from this busy National Hockey League week. Uh, Milt Dunnell wrote in the Toronto Star about the possibility of both Canadian teams missing this year's Stanley Cup playoffs, something that uh, over the 50s and 60s seemed almost impossible to imagine. As the teams north of the U.S.-Canada border are struggling this season, that possibility 
that neither of them will participate in the postseason seems more real every day. The last time both Canadians and Maple Leafs missed the playoffs together was 1925-26 when Toronto finished 6th and the Habs 7th. But amazingly enough in that season, Montreal still won the Stanley Cup that year. Only it wasn't Canadians. It was the own Montreal Maroons franchise that claimed Lord Stanley's mug in that most unusual of seasons. Maple Leaf defenseman Tim Horton, who now seems to be nearing the end of his career, looks like he's going to have a very nice business interest after retirement. Tim announced this week to anyone who'd listen that he is opening more donut stores. He's got several around Southern Ontario and within the next uh, few weeks he will be opening stores numbers 17 and 18 in Woodstock and Oakville, Ontario. The Oakville store will actually be sort of a flagship uh, store for the chain uh, and most of their training uh, will take place at the Oakville operation. Bad news for the Oakland Seals this week. Veteran right winger Bill Hickey, who's one of their best forwards, he suffered a rib injury on the weekend and he's going to be out for probably a week or two. Oakland saw uh, summoned a young forward named Tony Featherston from the Providence Reds of the American Hockey League. Now Hickey was having a good year so far this time. He had eight goals and 20 assists. Flyers coach Vic Stasiuk has got another one of his players upset, or maybe rather he's upset with another one of his players. It seems he's always at odds with someone on this Philadelphia team. This time, it's center Andre Lacroix. Lacroix is a smallish, skilled player, and he just happens to be leading the Philadelphia team in scoring this season. Now, Stasiuk doesn't seem to like Lacroix's approach to the game, his apparent lack of fire, and the fact that he plays a completely non-physical style of hockey. So, until the, the young guy started getting a little more feisty, Stasiuk just sat him out for several games. Now, Lacroix, he told several Philadelphia reporters he can't understand Stasiuk's reasoning. Andre said, I get paid to score points. Other guys are there to throw around their weight. I'm doing what I get paid for. Now, Stasiuk doesn't seem to know what he wants. He's constantly, to anyone who will listen, bemoaning the fact that his flyers have trouble generating any offense. And then he's at odds with the only guy that really seems capable of delivering just what the team needs. This one will be another one we'll have to take a look at, especially now that Bud Poyle is gone and Keith Allen is general manager. And we'll see if maybe Keith can engineer a trade or two that might bring some offense to the flyers. The National Hockey League Players Association, through their executive director, Alan Eagleson, says now it wants a voice in any decisions being made regarding participation in international tournaments or events. Uh, Eagleson seems a little bit too eager to get involved, and he also seems to be too cozy with the governors of the NHL. I wonder if Eagleson possibly has a chance to make some money himself off international endeavors. 
The association, by the way, elected a new president at the uh, All-Star Game, and he is Red Berenson of the St. Louis Blues, and he says that the issue of international hockey was one of the points discussed in a meeting with the Governor Players Relations Committee at the All-Star festivities. National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell announced that the league has appropriated $5,000 to conduct a study to find a hockey helmet that would be suitable for NHL players. Now, Clarence says that the helmets available right now to hockey players wouldn't be worn by the league's players. They don't like them. They're not comfortable. They don't provide a good enough protection. They're too hot. There's always seems to be a reason. So Campbell says he would like to find a helmet or even see if one could be invented that would appeal to every player in the NHL. And only then would they consider making helmets mandatory for players. But Campbell maintains it's up to the players, not up to the league. Detroit Red Wings made a couple of player moves this week, and one of them, if you were a fan of the Hamilton Red Wings Junior A team, you'll know this name. The Red Wings called up forward Freddie Speck from their Fort Worth farm team. Now, Freddie is a graduate of the Hamilton Junior Red Wings program, and he's been doing well in the Central Professional Hockey League this season. Freddie scored 19 goals, 25 assists in 43 games, uh, he has played a bit in the NHL before. He had nine games with the Red Wings last year, but he saw limited action. You may remember we spoke a week or so ago about uh, Senator Jack McGregor, president of the Pittsburgh Penguins, leaving his post. Well, the reason he left is because he's going to wants to concentrate on a run for governor of Pennsylvania. So the position of president had remained unfulfilled for the last few weeks. But during that time, the Penguins general manager, Jack Riley, was doing all the necessary duties and taking care of the work that had to get done. Well, the ownership of the Penguins has uh, announced that Jack will permanently become the president of the Penguins. Now, he's going to retain his general manager duties as well, at least until the end of the season. See, Jack is in the final year of a three-year contract, and I wonder if Riley, the president, will rehire Riley, the GM, during this offseason. Well, as we mentioned earlier in the program with our uh, player of the week, Dick Duff, this was the one trade that did take place this week. Uh, Dick had been at odds with Montreal management, wasn't uh, really happy there for a lot of personal reasons, which we won't get into. But this week, he was traded by the Canadians to the Los Angeles Kings. Now, the deal was originally announced as for a player to be named later, but that only took a couple days. The Kings announced that they were sending truculent young center Dennis Hextall to the Canadians. Now, Hextall comes from a, a family with a long hockey history, and uh, he would become a very good player over the next few years. Dick, with the Canadians this year, had only one goal, one assist in 17 games, but he told the Kings he was going to report right away. Our final item of the week uh, is an article that came from Frank Orr of the Toronto Star. Frank would go on to a great hockey writing career, one of the best in Toronto at this point in time. He was covering the junior A scene in Ontario. And with all the talk of the June amateur draft coming up, in which Gilbert Perot of the Montreal Junior Canadians looked to be the top pick, 
Uh, Frank went over the list of players in the Ontario League who would be available in the 70 and 71 drafts and who might uh, have a future in the NHL. And we'll give you the list of players that, that Frank made here. There's some very interesting names. These are the way he's got them listed as top to bottom best uh, players in the in the OHA Junior A series. Number one, of course, Gilbert Perot, the center for the Baby Habs. Uh, he's a 1970 draft. Speed, acceleration, stick handling, shot size. He's got it all. Not much more to say about that. The number two guy, according to Frank Orr, is Dale Talon, who's a center with the Toronto Marlboros. Now, Frank says that Talon has taken some turns on defense and he might be good enough to play defense in the big league. The third guy is a 1971 draft player, Marcel Dion of St. Catharines, little guy at five foot eight and 170, but surprisingly strong, amazingly quick, and he's also a really good defensive player. Number four they have is a 1970 draft by the name of Rick McLeish, a right wing from Peterborough. Next is uh, another 70 player, Daryl Sittler, a center from the London Knights. Or has Buster Harvey, a Hamilton left winger, ranked next. He's a 70 draft, are the next few guys. Uh, Dan Maloney, he lists him as a center, but we know Dan was a left winger with London. And then Serge Lajeunesse, a defenseman with the Montreal Junior Canadiens. And finally, he lists two more wingers, Craig Ramsey from Peterborough and Al McDonough, a right winger from St. Catharines, whom he describes as a sound positional player, very intelligent, and he's got an exceptional shot, and that was very true. Uh, Frank made a few honorable mentions, guys we should keep an eye on, but they don't crack, uh, crack that top 10. They are a left winger, Richard Martin, who will be drafted in 71. Uh, Ron Climey, our 70 draft from Hamilton, a defenseman called Jocelyn Gavrema from the Montreal Junior Canadiens, and a combative left wing from the Oshawa Generals named Bob Kelly. The last guy that uh, skater that Frank listed was a fellow by the name of Steve Durbano, defenseman from the Toronto Marlies. And if you've been following our Twitter account, you know we've been talking about the antics of Steve in the OHA games, and in fact, he's facing charges in St. Catharines for one incident at a game there. The goaltenders that Frank Orr thinks are going to be good, Danny Bouchard, who's in his first year with London, and he had a whole lot of trouble as he wanted to move to Ontario from Quebec to play in the OHA Junior A Series. He finally was allowed to do so, but the CAHA gave Dan a lot of uh, grief over that. The other good goaltenders is John Garrett from Peterborough. Uh, he's described by Orr as a dandy who plays the net as well as any junior ever did and falls to the ice only in extreme emergencies. A couple more names there. Cam Newton from the Kitchener Rangers and George Hume who played so well for that St. Catharines Blackhawks team. And we do have one other note for you. This isn't a hockey note. Uh, but it's a sport, I guess a sporting accident that we, we just thought we'd bring along to you anyway. Uh, the Kansas State football coach's name was Vince Gibson. And he was in a meeting at the Ahern Field House where the team plays its games in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, he was conferring with staff and uh, he had his finger 
in a hole in the table at which they were meeting. Vince rocked back and forth on his chair like he had a habit of doing. The chair slipped. It threw him to the floor. Vince went down to the floor. Well, most of Vince did. The finger was severed and was still left in the hole in the table. Vince Gibson was taken to St. Mary's Hospital in Manhattan, Kansas. He's going to be all right, of course. Uh, He's going to be one digit less. The middle finger in his hand remained in the table. I'm sure they've removed it by now. So what did we learn this week? Uh, Lots going on. We learned that the Western Division of the National Hockey League by 1970 had made some great strides in its quest for parity with the established teams, but still, they got a ways to go. It was basically no contest in the All-Star game between the two divisions. In fact, without the great work of the ages Jacques Plante in goal for the West, the game would have been a full-scale blowout. We learned that some of the up-and-coming stars of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A League are names on whom we should keep an eye on in the upcoming seasons. And we learned you can actually meet a person whom you idolized as a youngster, and that person turns out to be everything you thought and hoped they would be. We'll return next week with more news and notes from the hockey world as the month of January winds down. And here are some of the stories we'll be covering. We'll have a story out of St. Louis where blues trainer Tommy Woodcock talks about the inadequacies of National Hockey League players' equipment. We'll have news from Vancouver where the Canucks finally will hire their new general manager, to run the team and we'll tell you who he is and we'll have a story about a young hockey stars interview with a Toronto sports writer that ends up being just a little bit too chilling for me the 50 years ago in hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole and he does a wonderful job with this we couldn't do this without Andy Uh, our intro music comes to us courtesy of the rural Alberta Advantage a great indie band from Toronto. Other musical pieces that are added are done by Andy Cole as well. Now, our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and, of course, all those wonderful newspapers found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We also have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, in which we uh, give news on the podcast and the Twitter account. Another podcast you might find a lot of fun and very interesting is the Let's Write a Song podcast. Andy Cole is uh, the star of that podcast. Each week, Andy and a guest engage in some great conversation, usually about the city of Winnipeg, where they live, and uh, they also write a completely new musical piece. Now, the interesting part is some of the people in these uh, shows, they're not musicians. They're uh, journalists, writers, things like that. So it's very interesting and a fun program. Uh, Really neat project that I'm really proud of Andy for being involved in. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. When the 